Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to join us also at our online community at www.theferritjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our blog talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with J.P. Dancing Bear. Bear is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, as well as several chapbooks. His fourth collection, Family of Marsupial Centaurs, is due out later this year. He's the editor of American Poetry Journal, owner of Dream Horse Press, and publisher of the Orphic Prize, the APJ Book Prize series, and the first animal rights poetry anthology, and We the Creatures. He's also the host of Out of Our Minds, a weekly poetry radio show for public radio station KKUP. Natasha Sajay says of Bear, using myth, politics, nature, and art, J.P. Dancing Bear asks questions that can only be answered through poetry. These accomplished and various poems feature sure-handed lines and vivid images. J.P. Dancing Bear has an ear for aspens turning into an imitation of fire and bullfrog stars hungering for crickets. Hi there, can you hear me? Oh, sure, I can hear you. Oh, fantastic. So I'm going to jump in with one thing that I know everyone's wondering, and that is how did you come by your name? Oh, um, well, it's... um it's a fairly easy story, I guess. Um, <clears throat> when I was younger, as uh, as a kid, uh, we were out camping, and um, I'm one of those few people that have actually um, had a very close encounter with a bear. <laughs> uh, oh wow! Where I've been where I've been touched by them, um, and uh, and so um, that. That's how you get that name, basically, um, because you've had that kind of an encounter. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I know I never have, so that's kind of amazing. Um, okay, well, let's talk about your Gacella collection. Am I pronouncing that properly, Gacella? Uh, it's Gacella, actually, but a lot of people Gisela. call it Gacella. Okay, great. Thank you. I actually listened to an online pronunciation, and of course it flew out of my head as soon as I got on the air. So, um, okay. Well, the thing about it that I noticed is, you know, most poetry collections are pretty eclectic with just minimal unifying aspects, and I think it's actually kind of hard for most poets to stay on a strict track like that. But with the Gesela, you've built 
a continuity of motif and form, image, sound patterns, and, and even more. And um, I'm wondering how you sustained all of this without losing that energetic newness and freshness that also needs to be a part of each poem. Yeah, and that's one of the longer projects I've worked on because it, it was about two years. Um, <clears throat> and in total, there's, I think after the original uh, two years, there were like 50 poems, and now I've I've added some more to them so that there's uh, probably about 60 now. And um, they, um, they sprung out of my love for uh, the Lorca poems um, that had the same uh, titles. Uh, Gisela of you know uh, the one that comes in, into mind is um, actually now none of them are uh, Forbidden Love and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> so um, those poems have always haunted me uh, mm-hmm. when Morka did with them and uh, the various translations that I've read and then of course I I taught basically because of those poems I uh, learned Spanish so that I could read them in the native wow. language, and then um, I spent a lot of time with with those poems as well as going back and looking at the more traditional sense, which were uh, ghazals, and then mm-hmm. um, then looking at what the modern ghazal writers were doing and um, and at that time, which was at the turn of the century, around the year two thousand, <clears throat> and uh, like uh, one of the things that like uh, Robert Bly's um, the night Abraham called to the stars that uh, those are supposed to be gazals, only they're very much a, a different take on gazals than what we're used to seeing uh, as the traditional form. Yeah. And then I kind of rolled well, actually, all of that stuff in and, and created this set of poems. And I very much wanted to put my own spin on it, which was, you know, repetition of sound, repetition of idea, image, uh, actual words, those kind of things. Yeah, I, I noticed that. It was great. And um, I was wondering, why is it that repetition was important to the messages that you wanted to convey in these poems? Well, repetition is just uh, it's a take on the, the formal version of the Ghazal, which has a, a built-in repetition into the form. But I didn't want to be a formalist in that that regard. I didn't want to just go down that path and not um, add something new and kind of refreshing to it um, that would, you know, that would be more in the line of what Lorca was doing and, and also with Bly. So very much I wanted to um, to explore the idea of repetition as getting a point across as a literary vehicle as well. Right, right, great. Thank you. Um, will you read a poem for us now, The Mud Weavers from <clears throat> Inner City of Both? Sure. Uh, great. Uh, the Mud Weavers. And this originally was published in uh, um, Tiferet. Um, Wonderful. The smallest gods of the world come translucent and falling to hit the earth and thus feed it. They do not answer the farmers their bone-weary prayers, nor bright beaded pleas of dancers. Both are beggars in the dirt in the dry dirt. The smallest gods do not love us, no. They are the tin roof ang- 
angels singing beyond emotions. We are the thirsty soil. That's such an interesting view of divinity as apathetic. <laughs> Do you remember how the poem originated for you? Uh, yeah, I think I was just trying to say that uh, water is more sacred and something that's tangible um, to us that we can um, that we can pray to that we can that we also have some control over and that we should value more than probably we we do we seem to take it for granted and yet it's a very valuable thing it's it's um it's the lifeblood basically for the planet Right, right. You know, one of the things that I noticed about this poem and about a lot of your other poetry is that um, that it's built by this tightly interwoven comparison of two things, in this case, obviously, gods and raindrops, but I don't really want to call it a metaphor, an extended metaphor, because with a metaphor, it's clear which idea or object is representing the other, but in your poems, there's a sort of dance that happens in which the point of comparison is blurred and we're not really quite sure anymore, you know, which is the primary and which is the secondary object. And um, I'm just wondering if this is a technique that you intentionally developed. I would say it's unintentional, but I definitely spend a lot of time in the gray area. And it's mm-hmm. not my ambition to define uh, what's what's considered gray by being black or white or or anything, just... To, to spend that time, I, I think that that's an important place to um, to be because it's, you know, it's neither side of the equation, but it's both. It's where they blend. Right, right. That's fascinating. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to ask you also, after hearing that poem, I, I read an interview with you earlier earlier in which you said that you're sometimes surprised to realize that people think of your poems as religious and I'm just kind of wondering how you conceptualize them in terms of religion or spirituality I mean your own poems well I do, you know the thing is is what's key with me always is um, the writing mm-hmm. and the you know these lines they rattle around in my head uh, for quite some time and I, I spent a lot of time almost you could almost say in a way it's kind of a prayer by the time it's all done because they've been in my head that long that the the lines have just been repeated and that repetition and and um as it grows you know and more lines come in um and so i guess in a way that that kind of has a some kind of spiritual quality to it to a certain degree just because it does begin to sound like a prayer. And it's something I've written about many times where the very act of repetition, and, and oftentimes that's what a prayer is, it's a, it's a repetition, um, a daily prayer, um, something that, that is repeated by not only one person, but oftentimes many others. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have the fe- that feeling with the poem that you just read. I mean, it felt so much like prayer, you know, from both from reading it on the page and the way it felt when you read it aloud. So um, it's interesting. I can really see that. Um, well, will you talk about your roles as editor and publisher um, and how those activities have impacted your own writing? <clears throat> well, you know, when you're an editor, 
and a publisher, you're you're constantly reading, and you're always reading new stuff. You're reading um, from established folks, but also you know people who've never published a single thing, and it's um, something that that eventually rubs off on you. I mean, you're always going to be influenced by the things that you read, and as an editor, because you're constantly reading, you're constantly learning the new. Um, how should I say, the new uh, uh, ley lines for how to write a poem. Uh, So there's always something that you haven't learned or something you haven't mastered or something that's always been beyond your grasp. And sometimes it's just a really well-written poem by someone else that causes you to think about it, uh, the form, or to think about uh, maybe that aspect that's always eluded you. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know from from reading your work that um you have a lot of literary references in your work as well and it's really clear that literature has been a huge influence on your own writing. Um what are some of the non-literary aspects of life that feed your poetry? Well, I'm also very much a big film fan and I would say uh older films um because uh, probably because I've seen them so many times that they they tend to resonate again you know it's the repetition thing but uh you know like Cocteau's Orphe has always been a major influence on me um I can think of uh, numerous uh Hitchcock movies that have probably done the same thing Orson Welles um all mm-hmm. his various takes on Shakespeare as well as um you know just his his noir films uh, Citizen Kane definitely has been an influence on me. Um, those kinds of directors and I are poets to me as well. Um, they're just working in a different medium. They're very much an artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then well, music. To... I... Oh, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I, I was, was just going to say, say music has always been a a constant influence to me. I, I love almost everything as far as music goes and music forms. So classical music, uh, I love Beethoven, always have. He's a guy who wrestles with the gods, and, you know, um, I get that. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) you know, I can see that that also sound plays such a huge role in your poetry. Um, And you have such interesting sound meaning in your poems. And I'm kind of thinking of things like um, in the poem, Iago says, you've got these wild off-rhymes like logic and blossom and contempt and accept. Um, Can you talk about the role of sound in your poetry? Uh, Sure. That's very much conscious. And I I believe a poem needs to be read aloud. Um, It's something that Robert Pinsky once said that, you know, the, the body is the instrument of the poem. Uh, mm-hmm. So the poem is very much sheet music, and anyone can read a poem, and a good poem should be read by lots of people aloud. Um, and a poem to me is never really complete unless it has gone to that that final process where people want to read it aloud and share it with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I don't think that a poem is quite ready until it's been read aloud by the author several times. Because how else are you going to know for sure that, you know, it has that capability, that quality to 
go out and make other people want to read it aloud. Right. You know, that's that's got me thinking about something else. I'm going to leap to something kind of big from this. And um, I want to ask what you see as the role of poetry in contemporary society, particularly contemporary American society. <laughs> now, this is, I know it's, this is terrible it's be- only because I've asked this of so many other people, and I've, <laughs> I've never formulated an answer for myself on that one. Um <laughs> I don't I think it's important uh because of the fact that uh, it it opens people up to new ideas and that a poem uh comes in as a very simple thing uh that everyone feels is um how should I say this uh um unintimidating so that it, it has that guise that uh, it wears the sheep's clothes and very much has the capability because of that to uh, sneak in under people's defenses and then to make them think or uh, to get them to consider um, uh, different ways of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's one of the major things that that's important about poetry and still can be. And that's true of almost all art, and that's why art remains an important function of a real society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you brought up Robert Kinsky because I interviewed him a few months ago, and he was talking about this, and, you know, it was kind of right after he had um, given a, an interview where he said that poetry does not need an advocate. And, you know, I think he's got a great point because it, it, it may not always have the hugest audience, but it doesn't go away either. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, right, exactly. And, I, yeah. you know, in a way, I almost think that that audience, you know, by sheer percentage points, it, it, it may look like it's a, a smaller audience in society's view. But um, because the numbers have, you know, the number of people on the planet continues to expand, I, I think that, you know, it's still a very large audience. Yes. You know, that's an excellent point. I never really looked at it from that perspective. So, <laughs> Well, um, let's go ahead and hear another poem, The Symbiotic Sunken City. Would you like to read that? Sure. Great. Um, All right, I'll, I'll just, The Symbiotic Sunken City. Our city moves silently, towed by hovering fish that look as clouds once did. This metropolis is a jumble of old facades held together by straps and yellowing cement. In the cold, drowned daylight, someone is playing the blues with a broken string guitar. But not sadly, only in a shade of azure saved for the deepest oceans. The old women are gathering nutrients in the currents breaking around the foremost building. Someone climbs the lines with a scrub brush to keep our savior fish clean. We take our turns at the daily chores, work to keep the city in good graces. In the evening, small prayers are cast out into the eternal silent abyss below us. Everyone knows God is a fish. Great Mm -hmm. banners of fins 
stretching beyond our awareness. And here, in this holy hour of twilight, I too must confess to harboring dreams of swimming on my own. Thank you. I should tell you there are people in our chat room who are loving your poetry right now. Oh, <laughs> oh he's Thank good. You. Oh, he's good. <laughs> so, um, you know, our listeners can't see the poem, so could you talk about the form and especially the choice to use and then break from the cursets, which I think is really in, an interesting visual uh, compatibility with the, the meaning. Um. Yeah, it is. It's written in tercets until you get to the last line, which, of course, is where you're breaking away. You have this desire to to not be a part of this whole thing, to be an individual. And, of course, that sits on its own line. Um, And the poem, um, I I should say it's an ekphrastic poem, but I really honestly can't remember. Uh, I I can see the painting in my head, but uh, I can't remember (laughs) who the artist was. Um, in which it was a city that was being towed by a large fish. And that wow. got me to thinking about the whole thing about how um, how this could could be a metaphor for our own lives as far as uh, if we just took care of the things that are within our abilities to take care of, um, like the fish, the water, and then... Uh, to build a religion or a spiritual aspect to those very simple elements, how much better our lives would be. And if we all work together, taking turns and sharing the responsibility of that. So it's not on one person's shoulders to do all the tough work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's very beautiful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, when I first met you, you were doing the birthday poems. Do you remember that? Yes. <clears throat> okay. And it just absolutely <laughs> blew me away how prolific you were. I mean, it was just <laughs> every day these poems were coming and coming, and, and it doesn't really seem like you've slowed down any. And I'm just wondering, how many poems do you write in a day or a week or a year? And, again, how do you sustain that momentum? Well, I... Um, actually, the birthday poems project kind of came out of the fact that um, the previous year I'd only written seven poems, and I um, oh, wow. I had very little motivation uh, to write poetry. And uh, although I love poetry and it's done so much for me, but I just, um, for whatever reasons, life was taking over, and it wasn't. I, I didn't feel like I had to write anything. And uh, the birthday poems kind of went in the opposite direction and threw it into overdrive. Uh, So I wrote in one year's time uh, 1,400 poems. Although I would say, you know, maybe maybe a third of those were salvageable as far as, you know, to be published or to go beyond what they they were intended, which was just to be a giving back to the people who um, were friends of mine who were on Facebook and had been so kind enough to honor my birthday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and then I, normally I write about two poems a week. 
<laughs> okay, okay. You know, it's funny to hear you, you say that, that you went through kind of a dry spell because it just, you know, from the outside, from looking at you and all the things that you do, it feels like you just live and eat and breathe poetry, you know, because you write it and publish it and translate it, you interview poets, you're married to a poet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's just yeah. So so thank you for sharing that. I think that will inspire a lot of people to know, you know, that you can go from from writing seven poems to writing how many did you say fourteen hundred? Yes. Wow, <laughs> that's just mind boggling. That's like Neruda. <laughs> so anyway, um, well, you know, okay, so it's. It's so easy to look around on the internet everywhere and learn so much about who you are now and what you're doing now. But um, in some ways, it seems like you're a man without a past because I couldn't find anything, you know, about anything other than all the writing and the publishing and all of this. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about how you came to be the person and the poet that you are today. Oh, okay. Um, well, I. I, and I oftentimes will talk about this, but uh, it probably doesn't show up in interviews. I uh, I took a class. I was I was studying to be a novelist, and um, I just to fill out some extra credits, um, you know, to make the requirements. I took a poetry class, and I read a poem by James Wright, and um, it totally changed my whole outlook. Um, and I decided that I wanted to write poetry instead of prose. Um, and I, I had a poem that was published early on um, when I was still in college, and I, I felt that it was too easy and that um, I, I wasn't ready. Uh, mm-hmm. So I regretted it. And where most people probably would have embraced that, and really run with it, I was uh, very hesitant. And uh, I kept journals for about 15 years and um, wrote almost every day uh, of poems. And um, and I just kept writing poetry and reading poetry and, and just uh, working on my craft before I ever decided to publish anything. You know, you said something really, really interesting there, which is that you decided to write the poetry instead of prose. And um, what was it that made you feel that you had to choose one or the other? Or or were you just so overtaken by the poetry that you just didn't really want to write prose anymore? Well, I I saw something in poetry that I, you know, after writing hundreds of pages, couldn't, couldn't do, which is convey that kind of a message. And um, mm-hmm. that's that's what uh, that's what made me think. Oh, this is this is the challenge. This is the thing I want to do. And my mm-hmm. prose, I was always hypercritical of my own prose, and I still think uh, whenever I sit down to try to write like a short story or something like that, that the dialogue is the thing that always gums me up because it to me it's not believable dialogue. And when I was a kid, it definitely wasn't because of life experience. I didn't think I had enough to write, you know, realistic dialogue. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because your your poetry does have a strong 
narrative element in places. I mean, some of the poems are lyric, some are narrative, some are dramatic, and um, I see typically that a poet will tend to really focus on one of those three types of poems, but mm-hmm. I noticed that you just you seem equally comfortable among all three of those. Um, do you attribute that to your background of writing fiction? Uh, well, first, thanks. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> I do try to be um, diverse. I don't want to be locked into any one particular anything um, because, uh, again, I think um, I think it's too easy for people to slap labels on other people, uh, on other people's writings, on um, their approaches, or, or whatever it is. So I always try to 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 um, be wider than the net. Um, so that it's harder to to like do that for with my stuff. Um, so so it's conscious, and, um, and I'm always challenging myself as well. If if I feel like um, there's something that I haven't tried before, then that's something I want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it's a prose poem, for for example, then you know I might sit down and start working on prose poems until I feel comfortable with the with the form. Right, right. Well, thank you. You know, we're actually, believe it or not, about to run out of time. So um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, just ask about the publications or events or anything coming up that you would like to announce. Well, I do have an event that's coming up in Oakland. Um, that's the Penn International, um, or excuse me, not international, but national um uh Josephine Miles um award. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Trying to get it out. It's a it's a mouthful, I know. Um w- and that'll be in Oakland on um on December tenth at uh three PM I believe. Okay, great. And oh two reading? PM, sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. And well, there there Okay. No, no, go ahead, please. Is there more? Oh, I was just going to say, they're awarding uh, Inner Cities of Gulls, which is the book that came out in 2010. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and well-deserved, I might add. So, um, okay, well, thank you so much for, for being with us. It was great um, talking to you about poetry and <laughs> just hearing what you think about all of it, and especially getting to hear your beautiful poems. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the time, and and, uh, I definitely appreciate that you wanted to have me on the show. Oh, thank you. Well, have a great night. (laughs) All right, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, thanks again to all of you who are listening. Our next interview will be December 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Joseph Novakovich, novelist, essayist, short story writer, professor of writing at Concordia University, and final judge for Teferit's recent nonfiction writing contest. We'd also like to let you know that Teferit Journal has just revamped its beautiful website to an even more beautiful and efficient new website with new classes, writing, and membership opportunities. The site is also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry since our editors feature one poem each day from those who post. As well, a year subscription to Teferit Journal is just $19 and includes six issues, one print and five digital. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.teferitjournal.com. Thank you for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again next month. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.